You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Miriam Brand, and this is my friend Melissa. Hi. And today we're going to start kind of a new chapter in the podcast. As I mentioned last time with a recap, I've now finished the material that's based on my book, but there's still plenty to say about sin, concepts of sin in the Bible and Second Temple period, and sometimes going further into rabbinic literature. And I am still welcoming your ideas. So you can still, if there's something that you would like to hear about, I'd be happy to discuss it or at least consider discussing it. You can still feel free to comment on the posts at understandingsin.com if there's something that you would like me to address. But today, what I would like to do is talk about how we're going to approach things as we move forward, and just to remind you of certain things that I have discussed earlier, but are going to become very prominent now as we talk about concepts of sin and punishment, and we compare Bible and Second Temple literature, and then later perhaps even rabbinic literature, and sometimes Christian thought as well, at a very basic level, because I don't pretend to be a New Testament scholar. So one of the things that's very important to remember, and it's very central to my approach, is that worldviews change. And as worldviews change, the questions people ask change, and the answers that are acceptable also change. So for example, at one point, it's considered completely acceptable for there to be intergenerational punishment by God, not necessarily by man, but that the idea that God might punish several generations for a previous generation's sin is not considered problematic. At a later point, it does become very problematic. And we're going to talk about that in a later episode. The idea is that the way people are seeing things, the way the initial audience of the Hebrew Bible, and I'm talking about first temple books. I'm not talking about the books that are right before the exile and following, but the books that are during the first temple, you know, and and earlier those books, the initial audience has a specific view of the world that doesn't carry through to today, frankly, and that becomes very central in terms of the way they look at sin. What do I mean? Well, what I'm talking about really is, is there just one world, right? I mean, I think that most people in the Judeo-Christian tradition do believe in some kind of, in Judaism, it's called the world to come, right? And they do believe in some kind of existence beyond the physical world for human beings, okay? And that existence is a more complex existence than what we're going to see when we talk about the biblical Sheol. There is a kind of afterlife you could say that's talked about in the Bible in terms of the Sheol, the kind of the pit or the Shachat, it's kind of this pit that you go to, but it doesn't have any It's not a place where people are rewarded and punished so much. It's simply kind of a murky, a way of thinking of murky death. So if we think about, and and obviously I'm not arguing against biblical interpretation, okay? I'm saying, let's look at what did these verses mean to the first audience, to their first audience? How did they understand these verses? Just in terms of the plain meaning of the text. And then afterwards, these verses and these books are interpreted again and again as people's needs change. Now, I discussed this actually in an earlier episode when I talked about scripture. What does it mean to have scripture? What does it mean when you have books that don't change even when you do? Okay, you have books 
this is it. At a certain point, you seal them. You say, this is the canon. You can't change these books anymore, right? That's what we consider a canon are this kind of idea of these are the books and now you can't change them, all right? Now, the canonization, as it were, doesn't happen in one fell swoop. If we look at the books of the Bible and, and what books get in and what books don't get in, and even how malleable books are considered, how much people think that they can take liberties with the text, Already in the Second Temple period, we see that there's some kind of idea that you can't change, that you have to make sure that certain verses are correct. However, we have different versions of the Bible, you know, versions where people try to fix it, right? They want to fix it because there's a mistake there, clearly, because if Yaakov says to Rachel and Leah, if Jacob says to Rachel and Leah, if Yaakov says to them, you know, I I had a dream, right? And that's, that's how I knew to go for, you know, the spotted kids. And we, the reader, saw that he did this whole kind of trick to make the be spotted kids. Well, and there was no dream. Well, clearly someone forgot to put it in. So someone needs to put it back in, right? Someone needs to put it back into the text where it belongs, right? Because if he said he had a dream, he must have had a dream. So we see versions of the text like that in the Second Temple period, alongside certain evidence that people are trying to stay exact, where they're correcting verses. The level, at the level of the word, even. You know, you'll see little corrections. So on the one hand, there is a certain malleability. On the other hand, there's already an idea that this is the text and this is the holy text and don't change it. It's not clear how these ideas coexist because they clearly do. There are clearly people taking real liberties with the text and even quoting verses differently at the same time as there are scribes who are correcting and saying, oh, you got this word wrong. That's in the second temple period. However, What we have is once the text is, as it were, sealed, once there's an idea that you can't change this text anymore, and yet this text is supposed to be super relevant to our lives, what do we do? And the answer is that's when you have biblical interpretation. And that's why we have, I mean, our earliest biblical interpretation is the Second Temple period. That's as early as pretty much as it can be, because that's when you have all the books. But you have the Second Temple period, you have biblical interpretation, and that interpretation keeps these books relevant. And I don't think there's a problem, I personally don't think there's a problem looking at it this way from a religious perspective, because if one believes in, in Judaism, there's this idea of shivim panim la Torah, there are 70 faces to the Torah. And that's the idea. The idea is that it's a constant source of meaning as the world changes, as we change, as our thought changes. That's when those people who believe in any sort of scripture go back to the scripture and say, where do we find our the way we think? Now, how do we understand this book? And the understanding changes. And we're going to see that, especially when we talk about the idea of sin. In the version of the Bible that we use today, do we know which parts have been changed and corrected? Well, it's interesting because there's a whole school of study, on the one hand, trying to figure out what is the original text of different books. Some people say that there's just simply no way to know. Other people really do. Gene Ulrich from Notre Dame, he made a whole study of where is, and and he'll say, you know, in this case, the Samaritan book is the really original, and this, or this, in this case, and he'll look at each book separately, as opposed to when Emmanuel Tov here in Israel, when he first looked at what's the majority of the tradition, if you look at Qumran, he said the majority, in other words, if you split it into groups, and you say these texts at Qumran, these biblical texts at Qumran, reflect the Septuagint version, and these biblical texts reflect what he called the proto, what we in general we call the proto-Samaritan version, the version that the Samaritan Bible is based on. 
And then these texts are other things like Qumran that we don't even know what version they reflect. And then there are other texts that reflect the proto-Masoretic version. That's our Bible, essentially with very, very small differences. And he said, if you split them into groups like that, then the majority are the proto-Masoretic texts, right? So the majority seem to be going according to ours. However, he doesn't split them that way anymore. <laughs> so we lost the majority. If that was something that was important, I, I, I admit that that was, to me, it was never particularly important what the majority at Qumran specifically was. He now says that the proto-Samaritan texts and the proto-Septuagint texts in other words, the text that the Septuagint translation is based on, is a translation of, he says those texts are actually part of the same tree, kind of the same branch. What's interesting is what, one of the things, there are actually many different methods that we use to try and decide when an edition is not the real edition. For example, if it makes the text much easier, sometimes we say it's, it can't, it's not real. In other words, it was written in order to make the text easier. I'll give an example. We have when Cain says to Hevel, it says Cain said to Hevel, and it was when they were in the field, right? In other words, and then Cain kills Hevel, okay? So the question is, what did he say to Hevel? It just says, and Cain said to Hevel, and it was when they were in the field. And then we never find out what he said to him. Now we're missing those words. Clearly, we're just, we're missing them. In the Septuagint, it says, and Cain said to Hevel, let's go to the field. Now that is considered to be clearly an insertion that makes the whole thing easier, right? Because right? afterwards they're in the field. How did they get to the field? Oh, that's what he must have said, that they were all missing these words. And then there are things that are an argument. Was this the original? Is this not the original? So a good example where there's a dispute is in Ashrei. You know, we, we call Ashrei, what it's uh, Psalm 145. And there it's an acrosticon, right? It goes according to the alphabet but we're missing a letter, which is nun, right? We don't have nun. So in the Septuagint, we actually have a nun verse in for that. And essentially it's neman Hashem God is faithful in his words and he's righteous or kind in all his actions. And in Qumran, they actually found this verse. In other words, in the Psalms, Found in Qumran, they found the nun verse, right? Mm-hmm. And it was this. It was it instead of Neman, what we would expect would be Neman Hashem. Instead, it was Neman Elokim Bidvarav Chasibichomasaf. So in the Septuagint, where we would have you know Kurios, it has you know we would expect we would expect the name of God. It says Elokim. That that actually would be expected, kind of at Qumran. Sometimes they kind of downgraded God's name to avoid writing the name of God, or it could have just been you know a different version. So. For a very long time, you know, when the Septuagint had that verse, you know, Jewish scholars would say that's not the real verse, it's made up. And then when it was found at Qumran in Hebrew, it shifted the conversation, but there's still Jewish scholars who say it's repeating half of the verse is a repeat from elsewhere in the psalm, right? And the other half is kind of attached to it. So in fact, there's still this dispute over that, you know, is that verse the real verse? Is that the original verse? Or was it brought in because they were missing the known verse and they needed a known verse? By the way, so why do we not have a known verse? One of the possibilities is that the order of the alphabet wasn't set at that time. So it was very easy for one of the verses to be misplaced because if sometimes it came before Samach, sometimes it came after Samach, then it could get misplaced that way. And then someone copied it over and somehow missed the verse. So that's a very specific example where really the dispute is divided almost along religious lines. And general Christian scholars are much more likely to say that's the original verse. And Jewish scholars are much more likely to say 
even though Qumran changes it a little, still it's much more likely for Jewish scholars to say that's not the original verse, the Septuagint verse. So the English translation of the Septuagint would be faithful to the Lord in all his words and devout in all his works, right? And the Qumran translation is pretty much that, except for Lord, it has just God. There's actually an ongoing conversation about what is the original and what is not the original with different people disputing and some people disputing even the idea that you can reach an original or what meaning that has. But what we do have is we know that in a much later period, the period of the Masoretes, in terms of Judaism, there was a group of Jews living in the land of Israel who worked on getting the exact text of the Bible exactly correct. In other words, by exactly correct, I mean with its vocalization, with its exact spelling, right? If, if you've ever heard of Ben Asher and Ben Naftali, those were two famous Masoretes who were argued about certain things. To give you the idea of the level, and this is about in about, let's say, the, the 7th century, I believe the 600s, the level of the dispute between Ben Asher and Ben Naftali, we go according to Ben Asher, by the way. So if you say Yerushalayim, right, if you say to Jerusalem, you'd say Yerushalayim. Right? So the question is, do you say Li Yerushalayim or do you say Li Yerushalayim? So Ben Naftali said it's Li Yerushalayim and Ben Asher said Li Yerushalayim. And that's how we go. We go according to Li Yerushalayim, we go according to Ben Asher. So that level of argument happens. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and the Masoretes have set that, that level of argument. And that's who we vocalize and write our Torahs according to, to the extent that we have, you know, an accurate transmission from that generation. Of course, that's much, much later than the Second Temple period. And not only that, but we have the phenomenon of what we call in Hebrew kriuchtiv, right? Which is one thing is read and another thing is written. And we have that all over the Bible where you read one thing and even though something else is written there. And there are times when it seems like they simply had two different versions and they, they weren't sure exactly which one was correct. So they wanted to keep both. There are other cases where it's very clear that what's written was considered a much ruder word that you don't say, so you say something else. And of course, famously, the most common kriuchtiv in the Torah is what? God's name. God's oh, of name. Course. Of course, you know, it's, it's written, but we don't pronounce it. So that is, and the vocalization that we do pronounce is according to the word we say. When you have kriuchtiv, the vocalization that's written down in your book, and of course there is no vocalization in the scroll of the Bible, but the vocalization that you have in your book always goes according to what you read and not according to the word that's written, right? So the vocalization that we have under God's name in the Hebrew Bible is the vocalization of the word that we say, not the word that's written. That was a longer tangent than I expected. But back to the idea of interpretation allowing us to find continuous meaning and to glean, as it were, continuous meaning from a text that is frozen, a text that no longer is developing in itself. It develops through its interpretation, right? That, that is, in fact, what happens, that the core text of Scripture develops through its continuous interpretation, generation after generation of interpretation. Even to the extent that in the Second Temple period, when you have these books that are considered a rewritten Bible, where they're retelling the story, retelling the biblical story, what we find is that frequently what is behind the development of these texts is some kind of interpretation of the Bible, some kind of making things right or reinterpreting things in the way that you need for this generation. Now, what does that mean in terms of the way we look at 
sin and the way the Bible portrays sin. So going back to kind of the biblical worldview. All right. Now I'm obviously I'm leveling a lot here because there are different books of the Bible and I'm talking about and and we're even going to talk how within the Bible itself and attitudes change. But in general, there's this idea that you've got the physical world we live in. Okay. The physical world we live in. And that is where in the initial setup of the Bible, let's say, in the initial setup, that's where we see the consequences of sin. Okay. So let's think for a second, because at a certain point, we really do see more of an emphasis on, well, you know, you're going to get rewarded or punished frequently at the end time, right? But even before that, we have this idea that no, people are punished now for their sin. And the classic punishment for sin is death. Now, not any sin, obviously, but it is, there is this idea that what should happen to a sinner is death. You know, and we see this in, and we're going to talk much later about Yechezkel, about Ezekiel, and how he really talks about the idea of repentance as we think about it today. But until we get to Yechezkel, to Ezekiel, we don't have that same idea of repentance. We have atonement, and we'll talk about that in a later episode. We have atonement, but it's not quite the same thing. We do have the idea always of stop doing bad things, right? That is a concept. But the thing is, by stopping to do bad things, have you wiped out the consequences of the bad things you did? And the answer is, well, if as long as you're thinking in terms of mainly one world, and again, I'm not saying that there isn't an idea, you know, the, the, the ideas we have of the world to come, a metaphysical world. I'm not saying that there's completely absent. I'm saying that in general, the audience of the Bible is thinking in terms of one physical world. And we can see that in terms of the way that sin is being presented. Now, again, let's go back to this initial audience and the idea of sin. Today, and this is even for religious people, in the modern world, they don't think of sin, sin itself, as having real consequences. Let me explain what I mean. If you murder someone, obviously that person is dead, right? Right. But let's say God said, don't eat that thing, and you eat that thing. Okay, what have you just done? Oh, that's true. Yeah. There's no consequence. What have you done? You haven't done anything. You went against God's will, but you haven't haven't knocked down a wall, right? You haven't killed anyone. You haven't crashed a car, right? We don't think of it as actually creating any sort of damage. Now, that didn't used to be true, okay? It used to be that it was very clear if you sin, you're damaging something. You have done something. And that that thing that you have done, right, there must be a punishment, right? You, you have to pay for it because you did it, right? Even though you're damaging basically yourself in the example you gave, in a way. Well, I think that, I mean, it's, I always love the way you see, you see things because, right, <laughs> but that's not the way, but in, in certain ways, and, and I'm working backwards here, I'll admit it, I'm working backwards here. I'm looking and saying, how are the consequences of sin portrayed? And then let's look at what sin means. So what do I mean? There's a verse in Exodus, in Shemot, Lamed Dalid, right, 34, and this is the famous 13 attributes of God. These are famous, famous in particularly in Judaism, right? The Shlosha Sremidot, the 13 attributes of God, that Moshe wants to know God, and God said, well, okay, he wants to know God's ways, and God passes over his face, and he calls 
God, God, or the Lord, the Lord, God, uh, merciful and and gracious, you could say. Both are kind of words for, for merciful, slow to anger, and with much kindness and truth. He creates kindness for thousands. He lifts sin in its avon, vafesha, vachata'ah, three different types of sin. But he never remits it. He never cleans it entirely. Poked, now this is this is where we stop the 13. The 13 attributes, okay, 13 attributes, I was just kind of translating as I went, right? So I'll say it in Hebrew quickly without saying God's name. Hashem, Hashem, kel rachum v'chanon, erach apayim v'rav chesed ve'emet, noser chesed l'alafim, noser avon v'fesha v'chata'a, v'nake, and we stop there, but it really continues, v'nake lo yinake. Okay, now I'm going to explain it in English. Okay, in the 13 attributes of God, in traditional Judaism, includes only the good stuff, right? Mm-hmm. It includes the Lord being merciful, being slow to anger, giving lots of kindness and truth, creating kindness for thousands. And then it says lifting, raising up, in other words, raising up essentially from, in other words, by, by lifting, it means forgiving, right? Forgiving different types of sin and wiping it out, vinake. Now, the problem is that, of course, in the verse, it's not vinake. In the verse, it's vinake lo yinake, and he shall surely not wipe it out, right? It's like if I ask my parent, can I have a cookie? They say, you cannot. And I'm like, oh, I'm stopping it. You can, right? Right. So, so it's a very useful way of listening to a parent. And this is a very useful way of thinking about God when we are talking about God, when we want to say God is merciful, right? And in fact, we in the Jewish liturgy, the attributes of God are used when we want to arouse God's mercy, right? When you want to arouse, God, arouse God's mercy, you're not going to remind him that, you know, he said he wasn't going to wipe out sin completely, right? Well, that's not the thing that we remind him of. We remind him of, no, you said, and vinake. And you're gonna wipe it out, right? That and we don't sense. we don't finish vinake lo yinake, and he shall surely not wipe it out. And in fact, as the verse continues, it's poket avon avot albanim vabnevanim, and he visits the sin of the fathers on the sons and the sons of sons al shuleshim v'aribeim on third generation and fourth generation. Okay, now how can we understand this in context? What's going on here? What's going on here is actually fairly straightforward if we switch our thought. What does it mean to lift, that God lifts sin? What does it mean that God forgives sin, forgives sin if he doesn't forgive it forever? If he doesn't, if he doesn't completely wipe it out, what does that mean? It means he lifts sin and he kind of dribbles it out over generations. Because if God punished everyone for their sin in this generation, he'd wipe out the entire generation. That would be a bad thing. So instead, God stretches it out because the sin must be paid for. And yet, God does not want to wipe everyone out. God lifts the sin, then doles out the punishment over generations. Okay? Now, this is the initial plain meaning of the text, right? And we're going to see that this idea that it's perfectly reasonable for a later generation to pay for what a previous generation has done, the attitude towards this idea changes. Okay, the attitude towards this idea changes. And as I've said in other episodes, what is an answer for some generations is a question for other generations. For us in the modern age, we would say, how can you say that? How can you possibly say that the next generation will be punished for what a previous generation has done? But for the initial audience, this was an answer. It was clearly an answer because there are times when we see that something is presented as reality in the Bible and there's a problem with it. I'll give you an example just in just a second, but I think Melissa has a question. Yeah. If 
say a a grandchild is being punished yeah. for something that a grandfather did, but it's not something that's you know death. It's how do you know that it's actually a punishment, and what kind of punishment are you talking about when you say punish a later generation? Okay, so how does it's an interesting question, and in this context, it would certainly be difficult to know. It would. What is a possible reason that this way of looking things? What What does this way of looking at things answer? And would the person would, would being the, punished even know about the sin of the previous... So what does this answer? What does this verse answer? What actual real situation does this verse answer? It's a bit of a leading question. It's if something bad happens to you and you don't know why, right? Let's say someone who's perfectly... Let's say there's a child who dies. Let's say there's now... Again, I'm not saying that this is a satisfying answer, but I'm saying that it's a possible answer. I actually knew of a school where a teacher told a girl in a wheelchair that she was in a wheelchair because of something her parents had done and the teacher was immediately fired <laughs> yes <laughs> this was a religious school but that sort of thing is that does not fly right you would not say one would not say that to someone and even in a later generation within the biblical period it seems that one would not say even though we have it as an explanation actually pretty relatively late when we talk about kings right kings of israel right you know you have a relatively righteous king who dies why did he die well because his father was so wicked you have this used as an explanation for bad things happening to good people. And I think particularly probably for bad things happening to children, you know, even though it's a pretty horrible way to think of it. But yeah. I can see why um, that would be an explanation. Right. So it's possibly that. I'm not saying that that is certainly an explanation, but there is, it's true that there is no indication here that you, one would know right? What sin one is being punished for if it's from a previous generation. And that is the basic problem. One of the basic problems with looking at these, just one of the basic problems of looking at things this way. But it is at least at a certain period, it appears to be an answer. In other words, it appears to be, oh, this explains why multiple generations are suffering. Now, I also always like to go back to what is the actual situation of people. And how does this actually explain reality? The reality is that if a father of a child goes to jail, that child suffers. And the fact is that if one is simply looking at the reality, the way real things work is that when a parent suffers, frequently the child suffers. And it's not infrequent that that suffering continues on. So that's also, to me, a possible reason that one would look at things in this way. And in particular, when when it's one nation in their own land, where there's this kind of, kind of continuity, where when if a house is burned down, that was supposed to be the house of the children and the grandchildren, you know? So that's also an explanation of when someone is punished, the punishment of their children and grandchildren that is kind of built into that punishment is also considered part of the punishment. So that's an idea where sin doesn't go away in this concept. In this concept, sin doesn't go away. It's lifted and then kind of dribbled out over time. All right. People sometimes ask me, so what do you think about Gary Anderson's book, Sin of History? He talks about sin as burden and sin as debt. Okay. I think it is a good book that completely skips over the Second Temple Period's concept of sin. That's what I think. I think that the idea of sin as burden is a very central idea in the Bible. And I thank Gary Anderson for like showing that very clearly it's, to me, certainly. And sin as debt is an idea later in the rabbinic period in later rabbinic texts, but you don't really see either as a major idea in the Second Temple period. So I had a problem with the, the, the title, Sin is sin a History. I was like, no, it's not a history of sin. <laughs> but it, it points out some very interesting and important things about sin. 
So as we continue in this series, we're going to be looking at how these ideas of sin change. So we just looked at the idea of sin as burden, really. Sin as something that's a burden that doesn't go away. And what that means when sin is a burden that doesn't go away and God is merciful and slow to anger, that means he will not punish people right away. Okay. Now there is also this idea that God gives people time to repent. Okay. In other words, there is this idea that if they stop doing the bad thing, perhaps they will, God will change his mind as it were and not punish them. And we find that in prophets. We find that in Yonah, right? Yonah goes to Nineveh and he says, you know, repent or you're going to be destroyed. And in fact, they repent. Now, some people see Yonah as, a, as also a late book, in which case, it's already after this kind of switch in thinking, which recognizes this idea that you can kind of wipe out sin, right? The earliest idea that one can simply repent and then not be punished, we see most clearly in Yechezkel, in Ezekiel. And I would just like to remind you how late he is. He is already after the exile, after in the initial stages, let's say, the initial stages of the exile, right before the destruction of the first temple. With this way of looking at things, would somebody be more likely or motivated to repent for the sake of future generations? Or is that not a, a, a concept? That's interesting. It seems that, and we're going to look at, at Yeheskel in depth in a later episode, but it seems from the way he talks that, yes, it sounds like if you believe that children can be punished for the parents, then it would make sense for a parent to repent so in order to save their children. So we're going to talk about a little bit more about intergenerational punishment in future episodes and also the idea of collective punishment. Now, collective punishment is different from intergenerational punishment in that it is considered a reality. This is the way the world works, but it is not a just reality. And we're going to look in depth at the whole kind of argument between Avraham and God, right, that we have when they're talking about Stone, about Sodom and the destruction of, of Stone, and how that collective punishment while it is bound to occur, is not right. We'll talk about that also in a future episode. So I think you kind of get the idea of, of where we're going with this. We're going to look at different ideas about sin, about sin and punishment later on, about, about how these ideas change over time and what the purpose of these ideas are. And again, please keep in mind that when I talk about the Hebrew Bible and its initial audience, I'm not negating later interpretation or the validity of later interpretation. So for example, in, in Jewish tradition, when is a child punished for their parents' sin only if they continue that sin? Because you, one cannot be punished for a, a parent's sin. And of course, in Deuteronomy and Dvarim, it says that one cannot punish a child for the parent's sin. One is not allowed to. However, the question is, is that simply human justice? In other words, in human justice, one is not allowed to punish a child for the parent's transgression or parents rather for the parents crime one cannot ever punish the child for the parents crime but god in his wisdom when he is punishing for sins sometimes there is intergenerational punishment and that certainly seems at least to be a possible way of looking at it and again we're going to look at more instances of intergenerational punishment next time and see how it all kind of breaks down when we get to Yirmiyahu and Yehezkel where that is no longer acceptable and we have the complete kind of flowering of the idea of repentance. And we are going to talk about atonement, which is somewhat different in, in another episode as well. Looking forward to it. Okay, great. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a little bit of a taste of what's to come. And uh, we're going to be looking at different ideas further in depth as we move forward. And um, please, 
I'm looking forward to your questions and comments as always. Please put them on this episode in uh, understandingsin.com. That's the website. And uh, looking forward to speaking with you next time. Take care. Bye. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.